Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, welcome Center Street Church. Uh, Those of you here at Central Campus, also those of you who are meeting at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, in Bridgeland, down in South Calgary, and also in the Crowfoot Theaters in Northwest Calgary. And of course, we do welcome all of you who decided not to brave the weather and are watching us online. Uh, It is nice and warm here. We are really quite happy, correct? Correct? Let's let them know they're missed. Yeah. Now, if you are young, or if you're young at heart, I want to especially invite you to come back this evening at uh, 6 o'clock uh, at Central Campus here for our monthly night of worship. Um, this is an amazing evening together uh, in which uh, we have extended worship. We're going to hear testimonies. We're going to hear uh, see baptisms. Pastor Ashwin will be giving a Bible message. And um, I know, I know the Super Bowl is going on today. Uh, Of course, right during uh, our evening time together. But got to tell you, it's going to be super boring compared to the night of worship. (laughs) And so why not record the Super Bowl and invite your friends to join you for a super amazing time, um, lifting up the name of Jesus and celebrating all that he's doing in the life of God's people. Amen? Okay, so we're making our way through... Uh, the book of James, and we come now to the fifth and final chapter of this marvelous book, which starts out in verse 1 with a warning to the wealthy. So would you please stand with me, and let's read these first six verses together. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in these last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you um, for uh, inspiring James to write this marvelous book. And Lord, we would ask that you would expand our understanding as to what the words mean, Lord, the words that we just read together. And particularly, Lord, what they mean to us. Toward that end, please focus our minds. Ask that you would soften our hearts. And Lord, that you would give us the courage to respond in whatever way you'd have us to. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. may be seated. When I was in my late teens, I remember coming to this opening verse in James 5, which is directed to rich people, and immediately thinking to myself, oh, I can skip this part because I'm anything but rich. And perhaps that is what many of you were thinking as we read this passage together. Most of us don't consider ourselves to be wealthy. 
When we think of rich, we think of Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, we think of the multimillionaires, the millionaires, or pretty much anyone we know who uh, appears to have a better paying job and a higher standard of living than we do. Well, I have news for us all. By world standards, if you have clean water, bathroom facilities, a couple of meals a day, more than one change of clothing, and a roof over your head, you are among the world's wealthiest people. If you make around $11,000 a year, 87% of the people in the world have less wealth than you do. If you make $25,000 a year, 90% of the people in the world have less wealth than you do. And if you make around forty-seven dollars or $48,000 a year, then 99% of the people in the world make less than you do. Now, I'm not saying this to make us all feel guilty. No, I'm just stating the facts. By world standards, the vast majority of us in this country, and I dare say in our church, are rich, which means this passage applies to us and not just to the multimillionaires. Now, having made that clear, it's also important that we understand the Bible does not teach that it's wrong to be wealthy. Some people wrongly believe the Bible says that money is the root of all evil. Well, it doesn't say that. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. God doesn't have an issue with money or people being wealthy. He doesn't say it's wrong to be wealthy. He says it's dangerous. Money has no power in itself. The only power it has is the power that we actually give to it. The Bible calls us to love people and to use money. But you see, if we get that all twisted up and we begin to love money, we give money power in our lives, a power that can not only lead us to a life of greed and self-absorption, but to hurting others and eventually hurting ourselves. As someone said, the problem is not how much money we have, but how much our money has us. Money is dangerous because it can tempt us to trust in the wrong things. And this is exactly the point that James is making here in James chapter 5. He gives three warnings to the wealthy. And the first one is this. Wealth can tempt you to accumulate more than you need. In verse 2, James says, you have hoarded wealth in these last days. Now, he's not talking about saving money here. The Bible teaches that it's wise, it's prudent to put aside some money in savings. Proverbs 21, verse 20 says, the wise man saves for the future, but the foolish man spends whatever he gets. James' concern isn't that we put some money aside in savings. His concern is, is that we accumulate far more money and possessions than we really need. That we never get to the place where we say, I'm satisfied. I have all that I need. He's talking about the sin of greed or this excessive drive, almost an obsession to always have more, more money, 
more power, more stuff. Now again, it's okay to make more money. As long as your desire to make more money won't negatively impact your health or negatively impact the quality of relationship you have with God and with your loved ones. And also as long as your motivation to make more money isn't to increase your standard of living, but rather to increase your standard of giving. Now, in the first century, people stored their wealth in three primary commodities. Grain, clothes, and precious metals. And James says it's foolish to hoard these things because they're temporary. They, they will rot or they'll rust or, you know, somebody's going to rip them off. Look again, verse 2. He says, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. He reminds us that the best this world has to offer eventually loses its value. It eventually disintegrates or burns. Back in 1997, uh, a valuable painting by Pablo Picasso was purchased by a man named Steve Wynn. And he purchased it for just the mere sum of $47 million. A decade later, he turned around and he sold the same painting for $139 million. A nice profit. But all of that changed when... After the sale, he was standing near the painting and he turned very quickly for whatever reason and ended up putting his elbow through the painting, through the center of that masterpiece, leaving a six-inch gaping hole um, in this particular painting. Of course, when the buyer heard what happened, he withdrew his offer and $139 million evaporated. James warns us here not to put our trust in wealth, to not lean on it for our security because the best this world has to offer eventually loses its value. It eventually disintegrates or has elbows go through it. A second warning James gives to the wealthy is this. Wealth can tempt you to be insensitive to the needs of others. Look at verse 4. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Now James is speaking here to the rich landowners who have the working poor um, working for them. In, in those days, you were either rich or you were poor. There, there really wasn't a middle class. And typically the rich would hire the poor to work for them for the day. And then they would pay them at the end of the day for the labor. And they had to pay them at the end of the day because almost every poor person lived day to day. If they didn't get paid, they wouldn't be in a position to provide for their family, to buy food for their family. Well, apparently some landowners um, would hire a poor person to work for them and then either refused to pay them at all or paid them significantly less than they had promised. And the poor person had no recourse. I mean, when this happened, 
and going to the courts and, and making an issue there uh, just did not serve them well because the case would be thrown out primarily because the wealthy landowners, they owned the judges. And so this wasn't an option for them. They just had to basically settle for whatever they got. Now again, this was nothing more than greed. Driven by this idea that if I take advantage of you, I end up with more for me. In our day, this mindset shows up on various levels, including corporations and companies of any size that will compensate and treat their employees unfairly in order to provide larger profits for the owner or for the shareholders. This mindset also shows up in our lives when we charge people far more for something than we need to, but we do anyways just because we can. It shows up when we offer people far less for a product or a service than we need to just because we can. You know, I, I love to get a good bargain like anyone else. And I remember giving a person a lowball offer for an item that he was selling at what looked to me uh, like a, an estate sale. It was in his garage. And I could tell that he wasn't happy selling it for the amount that I offered him. But I figured, you know, if he didn't want to sell it, you know, he could just say no. He hesitated for some time, but I f he finally agreed to sell it uh, to me for what I had offered. And something inside of me just said to me that this individual um, had a financial need, and yet I ignored it. As I was paying him, I asked him if they were moving. And he said no. He'd lost his job. They'd fallen into hard times, and they just need the money for some of these items. Well, when I heard that, my heart just sank. Immediately, I knew that my desire to get the best possible deal was way more important to me than what I had sensed inside. In short, my sin was that I let money become more important than the person. The Spirit convicted me of that right on the spot. I was ashamed. I felt awful. <laughs> and I proceeded to pay him the full asking price. And he was a bit surprised by that. And and then he smiled and he said, thanks. You're the pastor of Center Street, aren't you? <laughs> no, I didn't. he didn't say that. <laughs> I hoped he didn't know me. Because I wasn't proud of my actions that day. James says, warning. Wealth can tempt you to be insensitive to the needs of others. A third warning that James gives to the wealthy is wealth can tempt you to live a life of self-indulgence. Look at verse 5. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You know, I've, I've often heard people say, you know, if I ever win the lottery, have you ever heard this? 
<laughs> if I ever win the lottery, or you know what, if this business, would you pray for me? Because if this, business, this deal goes through, I'm, I'm going to be making a whole lot of money. And if I make a whole lot of money, boy, am I going to be generous. Man, I'm going to give big time to the church and other agencies committed to helping the poor and the disadvantaged and those who are hurting spiritually and hurting in their relationships. Man, I'm going to invest big time in that. You know, most of us believe that we would be far more generous if we had more. And that's understandable. I mean, it only seems reasonable that if people are blessed with more than they need they would be so full of gratitude. They would just naturally want to be more compassionate and generous. But unfortunately, that isn't the case. Baylor University did a study and found that the more you earn, the less generous you are. According to the study, people who made just $10,000 a year gave 11% of their earnings away. Whereas those who made over $100,000 a year gave less than 2% to charity. And sadly, this is being played out every day all over our planet. People are needy because far too many other people are greedy. Even in the face of over 35,000 children starving to death every 24 hours, most wealthy people in our world still callously spend obscene amounts of money on themselves, on overpriced stuff that they really don't need, but they buy anyways just because they can. And this is what James warns us about. Wealth can tempt us to turn wants into needs, to slowly slide into a lifestyle of self-indulgence. And again, there's nothing wrong with enjoying what you have. 1 Timothy 6.17, which we're going to look at in a moment. The Apostle Paul says that everything that God provides for us is for our enjoyment. We're to be thankful for it and we're to enjoy it. But you see, if it's all about us and we use everything that we receive from God for, to, to increase our standard of living and care little about the mission of God and the festering needs in our world, this kind of self-indulgence does not go unnoticed by God. God will bring justice to bear in due time for living in such brazen self-indulgence. The imagery that James uses to describe how disgusting it is to God when people hoard their wealth and gorge themselves on luxury and self-indulgence is that of a cow gorging himself with food in the day of slaughter. And in verse 1, James says, the day's coming when we will see in living color, when we will see the impact our lives, our time, and our resources could have made in meeting the spiritual, physical, material, and relational needs of others. But it never happened because we wasted it on ourselves. 
And when that hits home, James says, when it hits us full force, there will be much weeping. And he says there will be wailing that comes from regret. He says, be careful. Don't let your wealth tempt you to stockpile more than you need or to live in luxury and self-indulgence. For when you do, you are preventing the resources that God has blessed you with from being used to meet the very real needs of others and from seeing God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, he said essentially the same thing, extended the same warning. In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, he said, Watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. You know, in the scriptures, there are several times when this kind of a warning is given. Be on your guard against greed. And you know why that is? Because when we lie, or when we cheat, or when we commit adultery, it's pretty evident when we've done that. We know that we've committed one of those sins. Jesus says, warning. He says, watch out. Be on your guard against greed. And he says that because we tend to be oblivious to that. We will quickly point out and call someone a gossip or a liar or an adulterer. But we are so often blind to our sin of greed. And that's why Jesus brings it to our attention and says, be on your guard against this. So how do we resist the lure of greed in our lives and always wanting more and more? Well, the antidote to greed is contentment. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. And so I'm going to invite you to turn there now. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 6. In verse 6, this is what he writes. But godliness with contentment is great gain. So what is contentment? Contentment isn't slothfulness. Um, it isn't this idea that says, well, I've made enough money for myself to live, and so I'll retire, and I'll just take it easy and go on vacation the rest of my life. Now, as long as we're able, God wants us to live productive lives. He wants us to do good. And to be his representatives, his voice, his hands and feet, either directly or behind the scenes in meeting the spiritual, the emotional, the relational, and the material needs of people. Contentment isn't the absence of ambition or having challenging goals or retiring from God's call on our lives. Contentment is an attitude an inner sense of having plenty and being satisfied. It's an attitude that says, I may make more money to invest in God's kingdom, 
but I don't need to make more money or more possessions or to be promoted to a higher position in the organization to prop up my ego, to feel more secure or more significant because my God satisfies at the core of my being. He is all that I need. Contentment is not something that you seek after or find. No, it is actually something that finds you when you seek first after God and his kingdom. Here in 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, contentment comes to those who embrace two truths in their life. Look down at verse 17. First of all, contentment comes to those who put their hope in God rather than in their wealth. Verse 17 says this, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to think that you're more valuable or more significant, smarter or better than somebody else because they have less than you do. Command those who are rich in this present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. The real danger of putting our hope in wealth is we allow what we have or don't have to tell us who we are. It's letting our six-figure income or our position in the corporation or our degrees or our trophies to tempt us into believing that we are more important and more successful than others. And letting our low-paying job and our lack of education and our rusted-out jalopy tempt us into believing that we are less important and of lesser significance than those who have more. And so you see, when we begin to think that way, and by the way, that, that's the lies of our culture. When you begin to think that way, you increasingly get attached to your stuff. Because you begin to believe that these temporary things give you value, give you significance in the eyes of other people. And that's why we get so upset when the things that we treasure are lost or are taken away from us or why we struggle with being generous or why we get upset when pastors talk about money. Because our identity and our significance is all wrapped up in our money and our possessions and our positions. And the thought of losing it or giving it up causes all kinds of fear and anxiety and insecurity to well up inside of us. Because who we are is totally tied into these things. These temporary things. Gerald Mann asks, can you be irrespective of what you have? Do you have to have to be somebody? If you lost everything, 
including your money, your trophies, your degrees, could you still be somebody? In other words, what is the source of your identity? Is it God the creator? Or is it the things that he created? You know, friends, contentment does not come to those who believe that our value and our significance is found in the size of our bank account or the kind of car we drive or where we live or where we work or the kind of clothes that we wear. No, that's the lie our culture feeds us and is at the root of most of our fears and anxiety and feelings of insecurity Non-stop activity, restlessness, sleeplessness, and endless striving. Contentment comes to those who believe to the core of their being. That our identity is not based on what our culture says is valuable or significant. But it's based on who Jesus, what he says about who we are. And he says by his grace, we are his children. We are a royal priesthood. We are children of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Precious children for whom he died. And nothing will ever change that. Paul says contentment comes to those who put their hope in God. And God alone. And then secondly... He says, contentment comes to those who do good and are generous. Look at verse 18. Command them. He's talking to rich people here. He's talking to us. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. Paul reinforces here what James says. And that is, true contentment is found not in getting and accumulating more and more. But rather, it's found in giving, in doing good, and being generous. One of the key indicators that Christ has invaded your life is that you have this eternal perspective of life. You see money and the temporary things of life for what they really are. Things that don't last. Things that will never satisfy the deepest longing of the human heart. And you see, when you truly understand this and you develop a conviction about this, the power of money and possessions and position and fame and pleasure for the sake of pleasure is going to be broken in your life. It will no longer define you. You will no longer worship these things or live for these things, but you will hold them with an open hand. And Paul says one of the key indicators that the power of money, the power of greed no longer controls or defines us is a life of generosity. In the same way that God defeated sin and Satan by giving His one and only son who died on the cross for us. So God defeats the power of money and possessions in our lives through generosity. So every time I give to someone else, 
every time I give to the work of God in and through the church, I'm breaking the grip of greed and materialism in my life. I'm saying I can get along without this. I don't need this for my security or my sense of significance and value. I'm valuable apart from the resources or the titles or the positions that I have. Paul says contentment comes to those who not only understand this and embrace this by faith, but who live this out in their lives. This isn't just something we talk about. This is something that we live. He says contentment will come to you when you do good. When you increasingly live a life of integrity. And you do what's right. Even if it costs you money, costs you time, or inconveniences you. Doing good means that you will do your part to bring justice to our world. Doing what you can to set people free from the grip of poverty, homelessness, and or human trafficking. Doing good means that you will invest in people. In whatever area God leads you to invest, it might be a child or a, group of, a small group of children. It may be a young person or a group of young people. It may be a group of adults. Furthermore, Paul says, contentment will come to you not only when you do good, but when your life is rich in good deeds. When every morning you ask the Lord, Lord, here I am, what is it that you want me to do with the resources you've entrusted me with? And then as you go throughout your day, you, you listen for his promptings. And you look for opportunities to display his goodness in and through your life. On a day like today, it might be a prompting to shovel your neighbor's walk or to help them to start their car after church. It might involve inviting someone over for lunch, practicing hospitality, providing a meal for a family in crisis, making up a shoebox or a a care package or a food hamper for the, for the less fortunate. Visiting a senior shut-in, blessing them with some baking. The list is as creative and extensive as God is creative and as great as there are human needs. It's endless. And God will direct you if you'll just ask him. Contentment, says Paul, comes to those who do good, who are rich in good deeds. And then he says, those who are generous and willing to share. This means being generous with your money. Not hoarding it, but releasing it generously to bless others and to see God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, friends, we must not forget that everything we have, including every breath, is a gift from the gracious hand of God. We must not forget that God gives to us, not just so we can take care of ourselves and our family, as important as that is, 
but he gives to us in order to give through us, to bless others and his kingdom work. Imagine the magnitude of the impact we could have as a church. In addressing the spiritual and social material needs here in our city and around the world, if we were to open up our hands before God each and every day and say, Lord, all that I am, all that I have, the time, the talents, the resources that you have entrusted to me, all of these things are at your disposal. What do you want me to do with what you've entrusted to me? I'll close with this. At the end of the movie, Schindler's List, there's a heart-wrenching scene in which the war has officially ended. Oscar Schindler is surrounded by hundreds of Jewish men and women. He had literally bought from the Nazis to work in his factory in order to save their lives. A spokesperson on behalf of the group expresses deep gratitude to Oscar for his kindness and his generosity in saving their lives and then proceeds to embrace him. There's this long pause while Schindler tries to absorb the full meaning of that moment. And as he looks into the eyes of the young and in the eyes of the old lives that he had in fact saved from certain death, he's overcome with emotion and he begins to weep. And the hundreds of grateful Jews who surround him are somewhat bewildered as to why he is weeping until he says, I could have done more. I could have done more. Seeing the people that he had saved forced him to confront the hard reality that he could have saved more if he had only sacrificed more. He points to his car and he says, I could have sold my car and saved many more lives. He takes his gold pin and he says, I could have saved several more lives with this. And he doubles over, weeping in agony and crying out, I could have done more. You know, folks, in this scripture lesson that we've looked at today, James is showing us what's really going to matter in the end. He's drawing our attention to the fact that through the redemptive sacrifice of Jesus Christ, there is only one thing that we can rescue or take with us from this planet, and it's people. Moments after we die, like Schindler, we'll know exactly how we should have lived. We'll, we'll know exactly where we should have invested our time, our abilities, and our money. In the book of Revelation, we're told that on that day, the Lord will wipe away every tear from our eyes, which tells me for a brief moment, there will be tears shed there. And I wonder if those tears won't be the weeping and the wailing that James refers to right here in verse 1. Tears over missed opportunities. Tears over misplaced priorities. 
know, my prayer is, is that on that day, we won't need to shed tears of regret. And we won't have to say, I wish I'd done more. But that we will only shed tears of joy in seeing the impact that our faithful ministry and our generosity had on people. Not only living better lives here on earth, but ultimately living forever in heaven with Jesus. All because we gave our lives and we gave our resources away in love to God and to others. Friends, I want to remind you that as difficult as James's teaching is to hear and to assimilate, they're not intended to defeat us, to discourage us, or to condemn us. Because we are children of the King of Kings. They come from the heart of a loving Father who wants us to experience the Christian life to the full. Not just to play Christianity, but to live it. To experience it in fullness. And He is inviting us to trust Him. To step out and experience an adventure of faith that will not only transform our character, but in the process will bring us into intimate fellowship with Him. And show us that our God is a good God. He's a faithful God who loves us, cares for us more than we'll ever know, and He wants to use us to show His love to others. And so the good news is this. Regardless of the past, we're still in a position to do now what we know will really matter then. May what will be most important to us then be most important to us now. Would you please stand for closing prayer? So I'm going to invite us to close our eyes and just to open our hands before God again as we ask these two questions. Lord, what are you saying to me? And Lord, what is one step? What is one thing you want me to do about it? Father, what a good God you have been to us. What a faithful, what a loving God you are. And we know that we're loved by you. We thank you. 
for being so generous with us, for your amazing grace, for making it possible for us to know you, to be in relationship with you, to spend forever with you. Thank you, Lord, for the forthrightness of your word, your clear call on our lives. And Lord, when we look at the needs of the world around us, we feel so incapable of making a difference. But Lord, we know that with you, all things are possible. And so we thank you, Lord, for the peace that comes in knowing that we have not, you have not called us to do it all. You've not called us, Lord, to do it alone. But that you are with us and that you will live your life through us if we will but surrender our lives totally to you and believe that you are enough, that you're all we need. Lord, we commit ourselves anew to being faithful to your calling in our lives, to living in your grace and extending that grace to others through our living, through our serving, and through our giving. We pray this all for your glory and for the sake of a world that needs the Jesus that we know and love. For we pray it in Jesus' precious name. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.